Article 50 is the legislation, I understand, in, in uh, England that triggers Brexit for them. So I think when they uh, trigger Article 50, I think they've got two years or something to actually get out of the EU. And so today is a little bit like that. How is it like that? Well, we've been, uh, we, as a church, we were planted back in 2011 in July. And we've talked all the way along that we wanted to plant a church. And today is kind of a line in the sand kind of day, and I'm, I'm triggering Article 50 for the project today, okay? And I'm telling you that we're actually getting on the journey to actually go forward to plant a church today. It's not just talk anymore. Uh, there's lots of action that's kind of happening and it's going to happen in the, in the next little while. Uh, and what I wanted to do is just give you a bit of a clear understanding from the scriptures about why church planting is important, um, speak missionally about why it's important and then hopefully just push back on a few concerns that people might have about church planting. So I'd love for you to have your uh, Bibles uh, with you. We're just going to read a bunch of Bible in the first half of this. So if you can go down to uh, Luke 24, we'll kick off there. Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, and we're going to start at verse 13. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. Mission is what the Bible is all about. Mission is what the Bible is all about. So Luke 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them, disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, uh, sorry, Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognising him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucify him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had um, even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And listen to this, this is a key verse. And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All right, here's the big idea. The Bible is actually a story. It's a story that's a missional story. And that's why the Bible can be really difficult to understand sometimes. If you're not a Christian here today and you've tried to read some parts of the story, some of the parts of the story are really difficult to understand. So any Christians here with me on that? So it's really tough, right? So you get back into uh, some of the things uh, about the kings. And there's all this stuff happening with the kings in the Old Testament. And you can kind of go, what's going on here? It's it's hard to get a handle on that. And part of the reason why is because that that was a part of God's story. And so you need to know some of the history to understand what that is. 
You get into the prophets and there's these prophecies about all these different kinds of things. And you go, what is that? Well, that's another part of the story. You need to know a lot about the story of what's going on at that point in time to understand what God's actually saying through it. And then I'm sure you've all memorized the genealogies, right? And you go, well, what, what purpose is that? Well, there's a very good purpose for that, but it has even more significance and meaning for people who are living back in that day. See, the Bible is a story. It's a missional story about God coming and rescuing humanity. I want to show you this um, clip um, about the, uh, the grand narrative, which uses uh, a whole bunch of uh, classic art, which, which I understand is classic art. You guys are looking at me like, yeah, like you're a classic art guy. Yeah. Well, anyway, I am in this video. Well, I'm not in it, but I am in terms of the video. Every great story begins with a voice giving shape to darkness. A storyteller speaking characters into existence, and it's good. In fact, it's perfect. Enter the villain, one who wishes to change the story, to bring death to mankind, to unmake the storyteller's good world. Our inciting incident where everything goes wrong the villain tells the characters they can create their own story, and they believe the lie. Death is sentenced, and the characters are enslaved. The villain is triumphant. But all is not lost. The storyteller is not idle. He has a plan. But it will take time and sacrifice. The people face extinction yet they are not swept away. They face death, but a substitute is given. They face captivity, and the storyteller provides their escape. Yet they remain chained by the villain. But a promise is made. A serpent is lifted high on a staff and brings healing. An unlikely king frees his people. From an ocean tomb comes a message of life, hints of a great rescuer, and then nothing. The story goes quiet. The people fear the storyteller has forgotten his promise. The rescue begins. The storyteller enters the story. He heals the sick, brings hope to the captive. He loves the unlovable. The villain plots his vengeance. He strikes, and the hero's life is given for his people. His promise fulfilled. The substitute is sacrificed. The people are again free and the hero emerges from his tomb. He gathers his people and sends them out as storytellers. More believe, their numbers grow. One story told over thousands of years. My story, your story, his story. This is The Gospel Project. Amazing statements in there, right? 
that the, uh, the storyteller writes himself into the story. And then how uh, the storyteller, after he's written himself into the story, sends out people as storytellers. I mean, that's, that's what God's called us to. Zip back over with me to uh, Genesis 3. Genesis 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can sneak up the back and grab one. They're just up the back there. See, Genesis 3, we've got the fall of humanity. Humanity decided to do their own thing. And, and who knows that when humans do their own thing and they ignore God, it usually ends badly. <laughs> it does, right? We decided to do our own thing. Have a look at verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, this is the, the curse or the, the judgment of a sort that's uh, being meted out as a result of the, uh, the fall of humanity. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and between, sorry, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. Listen to this, and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians call this last phrase there the, the Proto-Evangelion, which is the first gospel. This is the, the at the very point of humanity sinning for the first time, when no one's thinking about mission. God is. He's thinking about rescue. All right? He's got his, there's, there's the people that he's made that have just got themselves into a heck of a state and they've got no way of getting out of that. And right at the start of that, God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to come and I'm going to help them. Someone is going to come one day who's born of a woman and they're going to crush the head of the serpent, of the devil. So come with me over to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. It's going to start at verse 3 there in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before when? The foundation of the world, right? So here's the thing. Now it might trip you out, but here's the thing. God was on mission before the world was even created. Like, think about that for a moment. It wasn't like Adam and Eve blew it and God goes, oh, what am I going to do now? And then he calls all the angels in and goes, guys, we've got a big problem. We need to have a meeting about this. All right? We've got to work out what we're going to do. No, that's not how it is at all. God knew about this from the very beginning. He was on mission before the very beginning of the world. Here's the thing. When we do mission, when we reach out to people, when we are storytellers and tell them about Jesus, it's never original. We're never doing something that's original. You know, when God says that when you go out on mission, I'm with you, why is he with us? Well, a large part of the reason why he's with us is because it's his gig. It's not our gig. It's not like we think up something and we go, oh, I've got a really good idea. I'm going to tell someone about Jesus today and it's the first time it's ever happened. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't work like that. God goes, that's great, because you know I'm doing the same thing. I'm already doing it today, and I need to speak to their heart and tell them the, the gospel today. Bill Clem wrote a book called uh, Disciple, and in it he has this um, amazing uh, little kind of couple of charts that he puts in there. He talks about how when you look through the Old Testament story, what you actually see is shrinking hope. You know, you start off with humanity, and then humanity blows it, and then you've got Abraham's seed and uh, the Israelites as a nation under Moses, David the king. And here's the thing, every time there's like a glimmer of hope, have you noticed this, those, those of you who know your Bible, 
it kind of gets snuffed out by buff heads, as my dad would say. Isn't it? It's like, okay, so now we're looking good. And then they do a buff-headed thing. That's how my dad would put it, right? It's like, what are you doing? All right, and then a hero comes along. And it's like, cool, all right, that's really good. That's going to be really helpful. And then they blow it, you know? And you just got time after time. I, I don't know how long it's been since you've read the book of Judges. But that is an MA 15 plus book at least. And there is some festy gear in there. You know, and then you start reading stuff in the Chronicles about the kings and, and in the books of kings and you're just going, what is going on? And it just seems like as time goes on historically, it seems to get darker and darker and darker. And then you have some, the Israelites get sent into uh, captivity. There's a remnant and some good things start to happen for them. And then this freaky 400 years where God stops talking like that. Longer than Australia has been a nation, he stops talking. Is that disturbing? I reckon. And then, in the middle of this 400 years of darkness, it's like someone's taken a photo with a flash in the middle of the night right in your face. Have you had that happen? And it's like all of us, the next five minutes, there's things floating in the air that don't exist. Because the brightness of what actually happens is just incredible. And that's what it is. Jesus comes on the scene and he's this flash of light and, br and brightness in the middle of something that is so incredibly dark. And what we see coming out of that is this increase in hope. You know, it starts off with 12 disciples and the 72 and then it grows and grows and grows and then 3,000 become Christians on one day. And it grows and grows. And by 100 AD, we've gone from 12 to 25,000. By 310 AD, we're up to 20 million people love Jesus on the face of the planet. And it's estimated in Clem's book that about 80,000 people decide to give their life to Jesus every day. Who thinks that's exciting? That's where we live. That's the era that we live in. And it's like this hinge of history, which is Jesus on the cross and him coming to the earth, has opened up this expansive opportunity for the future of hope. Do you see that? Which is why I think in spite of all the difficulties that it is to tell people about Jesus sometimes, we should just keep going because this is a good era. Amen? This is a good era to live in. Like, you know, I mean, it's a bit unkind to say, you know, sometimes people say, sucks to be you. Have you ever heard that? So again, in the 400 years of silence and darkness, it's like, glad I'm not there, right? Hope you guys went okay. Really glad I've got the Holy Spirit. Really glad I'm post-Jesus dying on the cross. This is an exciting era. All of the Bible and all of human history is about God's story of rescue. What has it got to do with church planning? Well, here's what it's got to do with church planning. If you look in the scriptures, virtually all of the calls to evangelize and an evangel, let me just be clear about this because evangelism and evangelicals have a particularly bad name. But you know what an evangel is? An evangel is someone who tells good news. That's what an evangel is. So when you're doing evangelism, what are you doing? Well, you're telling a good, a good news about Jesus. You're telling, you're a reteller of God's story. Virtually all of the calls to evangelize in the scriptures are actually calls to plant churches. See, the, the, uh, the Great Commission actually said, um, Christ commissioned to us, 
was to make disciples to, and to baptize. So let's just go to that. Matthew, Matthew 28. Matthew 28. You'll see this with your own eyes. Make sure I'm not making it up. Matthew 28, starting at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the day. To the end of the age you see when you have a new disciple that gets baptized the bible is pretty clear about the fact that they end up becoming part of a community and the community that they are meant to become a part of is the community of the church when i talk about the church i'm not talking about building another building i'm talking about the community of the church come with me now to uh, acts chapter 2 i want you to see this so what I'm saying here is that the command to evangelise is connected to planting churches. All right? Acts chapter 2, the, uh, the story of the early church. This is at the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given. So we're going to go to verse 41. So those who received his word were baptised and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, I'm just going to pull up there and just say something unrelated to the point that I'm making. Do you think that's possible? Like when you read that, do you just think, yeah, that's back in the day. That's like old school Holy Spirit movement. Like is it possible that 3,000 people could become Christians in the one day in Toowoomba? That's your bottom dollar it is. All right? Absolutely it is. Now the question's going to be after that, if we have 3,000 people get saved on the same day in Toowoomba, how are the churches going to handle that? Are we ready to have another couple of hundred people join us who just get saved? Interesting question. What happens after these people have become Christians and have been baptised? Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here's the big point here, right? These people have become Christians and it's not like all of a sudden they've just become these random standalone Christians that are wandering aimlessly through the city. Do you see that? They're actually in a community of people. There's authority in there in terms of the apostles' teaching. There's a church. They've actually gotten together as the church. And that's the New Testament teaches about leadership and authority in the church. And they were part of something that was doing that. Now, what does Paul do? Just, just think a little bit more with me about what Paul does. Well, you know one of the things Paul does is Paul appoints elders in every single town. That's his goal. It's like, I want to get some elders in the church in that town what do you have to do to have elders in a church well you need a church right that's what he's doing so paul actually goes about and what's paul doing it looks like paul's just planting churches that's what he's doing and he's setting up elderships in churches 
and he, and he feels like his work is done. You get a sense from Paul that his work is done when the church is planted. Listen to this from Titus 1 uh, verse 5. Paul says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, listen to this, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That's what he's doing. He's setting up churches in different towns. I mean, if you track the development of the early church, you actually see that the planting of churches is the way that the gospel gets extended across the countryside. The church expanded through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Church planting matters, and it matters greatly. The church is the vehicle that God uses to advance the gospel and to grow believers into the image of Jesus. So it matters. So here's where I'm going now. Why church planting? So we've done God's always on mission. We've done, here's the biblical reasons for church planting. Here's the missional reasons for church planting. This is Peter Wagner, a missiologist. He says this. Planting new churches is the most effective evangelistic methodology known under heaven. Full stop. This guy's a guru. People quote this guy, right? He's a guru, guru when it comes to missional strategy. An Australian church planting network uh, called Geneva Push just sent me a flyer this week and uh, their research has uh, um, shown them this, that new churches are five times more effective at reaching people with the gospel than established churches. It's a no-brainer. If you want to reach people for Jesus, you need to plant new churches. Why do new churches... Uh, why are they so effective? Well, they reach new generations. They reach new residents, they reach new people groups. I'll tell you something, what we know about church planting is that younger people tend to go to new churches because they're less encumbered by the traditions of older churches. You've probably seen some of this. New churches gain most of their new members, they say between 60 and 80% from people who are not attending any church. That was actually absolutely the case with the project back in the day in 2011. 60 to 80% of the people were not connected to any church and they're coming and plugging in with the project here. Listen to this. Churches over 10 to 15 years old get 80 to 90% of their their growth from transfer growth from other churches. Now, we're not against transfer growth. But if we think about the church of God being all the churches of God and not just the project, the church of God does not have a win when people swap churches. Not necessarily, all right? We can, and there's a bunch of you who have come across from other churches, and I don't want you to feel like you're not welcome. But the main game for the church of God as a whole is what? To reach people who don't know Jesus. You know, I mean, there's... I'm not bagging anyone here, but one of the things that's well known about Toowoomba is just the state of flux that goes on and people chopping and changing churches all the time. And I say, find out where God wants you to be and sink your teeth in there plant your roots down and if it's not with us that's fine so if you're visiting with us and you're wanting to find out what the project's like and whether this is where God wants you to be you're really welcome and we want you to be here but I would encourage you don't float around Now your colours to a mask somewhere get your, uh, get your hands dirty serving there a new church statistically brings in six to eight times more new people into the body of Christ than an established church Let me go on with some other advantages of new churches. New churches grow better than old churches. 
The older a church gets, the less efficient the church becomes at baptising new members. New churches provide heaps more options for the unchurched. You know why? Because they think about people outside the church more than they think about people inside the church. As the church gets older, you know what we start thinking about? We think about us. We get navel-gazing. We get thinking about stuff in our own church that we want to get right so that we're nice and comfortable. I tell you, when the project first started and we had 40 to 45 people on the first morning on July 24, 2011, we were thinking mostly about people who weren't in the project. We were thinking mostly about people who weren't connected to churches and that shaped the way that we actually thought about things. When churches get older, we have a few victories, right? And you kind of go, that's cool. Things are going pretty well. So we just settle a little bit. Yeah, you know, Saturday morning, someone at the, uh, might have been one of the Rahab ministry people, but someone at the uh, City Women Breakfast said they heard a pastor say this. The pastor said, do you know what God's reward is for winning a battle? A bigger battle. <laughs> that's what it is. But that's what it is for us. Like if you look at us and you go, oh, things are going pretty well, all right? Or maybe they're going okay, you know, we're kind of happy with the way things are at. Here's what we need to do is we need a bigger battle to fight. That's what we need. Because you know what will happen is we'll turn inward and we'll start thinking about what's comfortable and suitable for us and what, fa- what fancies we would like to have satisfied in the local church. This, this is not a church that's about satisfying your every women fancy. That's not what it's about. I don't think any church is meant to be about that. A lively, alive, fruitful church is not so much about are we doing okay? It's like, yeah, like we do want to look after people, but why do we want to look after people? So we get people on the cutting edge telling other people about Jesus. True? That's what we want to do. And new churches tend to do that better. New churches try more things than older churches because they don't have the same kind of stakeholders that older churches have. They don't have people in the church that are giving $500 or $1,000 a week and people start making decisions going, we've got to keep them happy. You with me? We don't have people... Like in, in established churches, there can be some kind of kinship kind of seam running through the church. And some of you guys kind of know this, right? There's someone in the church and they've been in the church since year dot, right? And it's like, we've got to keep them happy. We can't cut across that family. You know, they're kind of like the godfather of the church, you know? They're going to rub you out if you do the wrong thing. You see, what happens in older churches is that there's, there's stakeholders in there, even leadership stakeholders that just kind of inha- inhibit just rough, lively growth in the church and the edginess about it. But here's a good thing. You know what new churches do? One of the things that new churches do is they are like that and they force existing churches to reevaluate why they do things and this will happen to us this will happen to us there'll, there'll be um, see a new church is kind of edgy i mean one of the kind of half jokes half serious kind of subliminal mission statements of the project is just have a crack right and it's still kind of there just let's have a crack and just see what happens see that's what new churches do and do you know whenever you get someone who's kind of have a crack at doing this, you know what you get? Is you get a whole bunch of other people that like having a crack. 
Okay? And what we've actually found in the project is we've actually got a lot of people in the project that have got an entrepreneurial spirit. Why? Because of the nature of the beast. <laughs> All right? Because it's risky and we've got no backup. And if we run out of money, it's all over. No one's going to come and save us. We don't own any property. We don't really own anything. The only stuff that we own is stuff that we use to do ministry. And you know what happens when you have a church like this is, and when you plant churches, is established churches start looking at them and just going, we would never do that. But that's really working <laughs> in that church. And they start thinking, maybe we've lost our edge and, and, and established churches start to kind of reevaluate themselves. I'll tell you what else church plans do for the existing churches. Church plans are a bit edgy and they're not kind of, everything's not neat in a church plan. And it hasn't been in the project and it's still not all neat in the project yet. And you know, some people go to church plans and they go, man, there's a life in here that I don't really see in too many other places, but it's a bit messy. And they get saved, they become a Christian, God changes them the Holy Spirit comes into their life and then they just go, oh, it gives me the shakes a bit too much. <laughs> so what do they do? This is, this, a lot of people know that this happens. What do they do? They come to faith in a church plant, they go and join an established church that's got things squared away. And you know what? Is that a win? Yeah. Of course it is. Massive win. They don't have to stay in the church plant. Let me uh, show you a couple of charts. This is from a, um, a Lifeway Australian church planting study that was done in 2015 16. So this is actual Australian data. It's uh, data that comes from 140 pastors overseeing new church work. Um, and, and it was new church works that were started in 2000 or later and are still operating today. Here we go. In Australia, uh, in this latest study here, 33% of people going to new church works are unchurched. So 14% are completely unchurched and 19% are unchurched for many years. That would have been really true of the project, all right? The stats that I gave you earlier are American stats, and there can be a little bit of a difference between the two. Uh, this is the, these are the Australian stats, right? I mean, think about that. The project plants a church somewhere, a third of the church are going to be people who don't have any connection to Jesus, really, at that point in time. And that's what we had at the project. We had people come and join the church who hadn't been connected to church for like 15 years, you know, and they drifted. I mean, that's, that's a win. We'll take that one. Average weekly worship attendance in Australia of church plants. Look at the uh, American line, the top one there, the grey line. Australia's a blue line at the bottom there. You can see in the first year, 38, second year, 50, third year, 61, fourth year, 70. So steady growth. What is that telling you? It's telling you that Australia is tougher than America. You don't have as much of a lead in there. Average number of new commitments to Christ. First year, three. Second year, three. Third year, five. Now, pull up for a sec. Go back here, look at the average size of a church plant in the first year, 38. What's, what's uh, 3 divided by 38? It's probably about 8%, 7 or 8%, right? You, know, you might go, well, oh, it's only 3. Well, hang on, think about it proportionally with the number of people that are in that church. I mean, we're, we're probably about 200 on a Sunday morning. So what's 7 or 8% of 200? It's about 16 or 17 are we seeing 16 to 17 people come to faith and joining the project every year? No, we're not. We are seeing people come to faith and join the project, but not that many. 
See, church plants, just they connect with people, they connect Jesus with people, they're really effective at doing that. And this is just an interesting one I thought I'd throw in at the end here. 59% of congregations financially contributing to other church plants are a quarter unchurched. Think about that. You get that, like the people that are actually financing church plants are the churches where there's the most unchurched people in them. So I just want to go through a few uh, additional points about um, the strengths of uh, new churches. New churches develop more leadership. Here's the thing. When a church gets to a certain size, there's just a bottleneck in the established church with regard to leadership development. And that tends to be connected to tradition, tenure, routine, uh, kinship ties. Uh, new churches, as I said before, attract more people who value creativity, risk, innovation and future orientation. Who likes those? Oh, wow. <laughs> Who likes a bit of risk? And like, let's go forward and just try a few things and mightn't work. Who likes that? Okay? That's, that's what new church plants do, right? And what happens is people get around them and they go, yeah, I'm with that. I'm down with that. Let's do that. That looks really good. In contrast, who knows that they've seen this in older churches? Older churches tend to box people out with strong leadership abilities because they're a threat to them. Have you ever seen that? That's going to box them out. It's like you actually need to be cut loose on a new work. Go and cut your teeth on that one. See, planning a new church provides opportunity for all people to grow and develop. Number two, new churches revitalise older ones. See, new churches, as I said before, bring new ideas into the body of Christ. They're freer to innovate. Older churches say, that won't work here. <laughs> you heard that one? We don't do that here. That won't work. But you know what happens? When a church plant tries it and it works, older churches go, oh, maybe we should try that. That's just kind of how it works. The um, Tim Keller's church planting network, City to City, suggests that when they, they plant two or three, sorry, when they plant a church in a particular region, region, two to three other church plants seem to happen pretty soon afterwards. And one of the words that they actually use about it is when you uh, plant a church, the water table of spirituality in the area just goes up. So here's the thing. I mean, back when the project was planted in 2011, did we plant a church in Toowoomba because it was a good business case for it? Absolutely not. There's churches all over the place. We did it because God called us to. Now, would it make sense, given that there's churches all over the place in Toowoomba, would it make sense to plant another church in Toowoomba? Absolutely it does. Do you know why? Because 90% of people don't know Jesus yet. And church plants reach people for Jesus. So, so I'm just kind of saying, what, we've got to think, this is kind of what I'm trying to show you here is that new churches actually revitalize older churches and they actually lift the spiritual water table in the area who knows that Toowoomba's got a half decent spiritual water table we do right who knows that it could actually be a bit higher yeah, okay so we could go and plant somewhere where there's no churches or we could go and plant somewhere where there's heaps of churches it would be a good thing to do either of them you get the point Somehow, church planting increases the missional water table. Number three, church plans revitalise mother churches. So if we think about the project, 
the project planning a church, the project would be mother church and the, the new church would be a daughter church. You know, it's clear in the evidence that church plants revitalise mother churches. It makes them more missional, there's new ministries going on, there's excitement, there's a focus on mission, new members are coming into God's family. A guy called Jeff Farmer uh, did his PhD dissertation on the effect that a church plant has on the mother church. He surveyed a bunch of churches in uh, the south of America, a bunch of Baptist churches, and he surveyed three areas. It was uh, the number of baptisms, the church attendance on a Sunday morning, and Sunday school attendance, which is a big thing in the States. All right? That usually happens before or after church. You know what he found? He found that when churches planted a church, for the five years after the church was planted, that there was a significant increase in each of those three areas in the mother church. And it started to kind of ebb away in the fifth year. You know what Jeff Farmer suggested? He said, if you want your church to stay really healthy, you need to plant a new church about every three and a half to four years. And we're almost six. Manoia said this, he said, the Dead Sea is dead because it's not flowing into anything. Species die because they don't reproduce. Seeds rot if they're not planted. Churches and districts stagnate if there is no new life. You so the, the tendency for churches is to curve in on themselves. And I'm sure so many of us have seen it. And that danger exists for us as well. That we would curve in on ourselves and stop thinking about people outside of us, 90% of whom don't know Jesus, and will go to hell forever and start thinking about our own comfort. God did not set us up as a church to be thinking about our own comfort predominantly. He says he will take care of us and it is the role of the church to make sure that they're looking after people. Absolutely, but why? So that we are actually out on mission as his storytellers. So here's a good question. When's a good time to plant a church? An informal survey in the States a little while ago asked pastors what was the optimal size to plant a church. Do you know what every one of them said? About 25% bigger than what we are. That's telling. Ed Stetzer says this from LifeWay Research. He said, planting a church is like having a baby. There's never really a good time. There is enough time, money, energy and space to have one. Childbirth is messy and has a lot of yelling. But in the end, a beautiful life is born. The labour is forgotten and we often want to have another. Ed goes on, he says, choose not to become a cul-de-sac on the Great Commission Highway. We've got a lot of churches on some strong birth control, he says. We need to have a lot more pregnancies, intended ones. We need to see some beautiful church plants born and then we'll want to have another one and another one. I would exhort some established church pastors to get some skin in the game. Generously give to church planting, yes, but then go and plant a church. Choose not to become a cul-de-sac on the Great Commission Highway. See, that's why at the end of last year we gave most of our missions money, we set aside most of our missions money for church planting. It's, it's how it's meant to be. I mean, if that's the most effective missional strategy, let's be doing that, let's be investing in that. But some of you may, be, may not be so excited. And so I just wanted to run over really quickly some concerns that you might have about church planning. One of them is people would go, 
We've already got heaps of churches in Toowoomba. Let's just fill those. Well, I hope I've answered that. It's not just about filling them because it's actually the new works that attract new people. We need new works. Some people would go, if you just plant another church, aren't you just taking another piece away from a shrinking pie of the people that go to church? But that's not what we're doing, right? We actually want to enlarge the pie. It's not about having another piece and now we've got to share out all the Christians to another church. That's, that's not the idea of doing a church plant. Some of you might go, shouldn't we just help the churches that are struggling first? You know, and there are some churches that struggle and there are some churches that struggle and then a church plant comes along and it can be a bit difficult for them. But I hope that you've seen that new church works actually revitalise and help other churches around them. Where are we up to? Well, we've been investigating church planting networks because we don't want to just do church planting because it's a good idea. We actually want to do church planting and be with some people who have, who have uh, got a lot, of, a lot of experience and a lot to contribute uh, to us in doing a church plant. And you've heard a few weeks ago we talked about the Acts 29 conference um, and we, we're probably thinking it's a pretty good fit. Um, and we're, we're pressing deeper into it. I mean, uh, part of the process is just for the church, the project itself, just to think through and just move into the process a little bit of working out whether we'd become an Acts 29 church. Uh, it's not a denominational affiliation, it's a network. Um, and then, and so that's, that's part of the process even for Ange and I, because it would be Ange and I that would need to go through that. Um, and then we're just looking at um, the possibility of whether God might be calling Matt and Chloe to, uh, to be the church planners for us of the new work. Um, do you know, it's going to be painful. It's going to be wonderful, but it's going to be painful. Because you know what the gospel does? The gospel gives the best people. It doesn't find the people that are a pain in the backside and go, let's get them to go and start something. It actually says, let's find the best people that we've got and send them all out. And our heart is not just to send out a couple of people and just wave them goodbye, you know, from the foyer there and say, hope it all goes well for you. I'll be praying for you, brother. That's all we're going to do. It's like we, we want people to go with them. We want, a, we want a clan, right? Not clash of clans, clan, but we want a clan of people that's just going to go, yeah, we're in for this. We're prepared to sacrifice for this. I've got a lame job compared to winning people for Jesus. The best job in this room is a lame job compared to winning people for Jesus. Part of the uh, requirement of being an Acts 29 church is that we've got the freedom of where we want to invest this, but they just want you to give 10% of your income to church planning. And I think that's a good plan. Whether it be your own or whether you support someone else's, they've got a similar heart for us. There's some initial setup costs and assessment costs, but we're just going to push it in there just to see how that's going to play out. Pardon me, but we'll just go... A little bit longer. I want to show you a video. This is a video that they showed at the Acts 29 uh, church planning conference on the Gold Coast a few weeks ago. Church planting is God's strategy to disciple the nations. It is through His church that Christ will reach into every corner of the earth. And so we go. We drill deep into our neighborhoods with the transforming power of the gospel. We reach wide with the gospel so that the whole world can hear. The gospel word is alive. It penetrates hearts and cultures. With it, we drill deep into the richness and brokenness of our community. 
Imagine a society saturated with churches committed to radically serve their neighborhoods, to face head on the complexities of their culture, fighting injustice, exposing lies, celebrating diversity, lifting high the name of Jesus. Imagine life springing forth in barren post-Christian cultures. Imagine passion welling up amongst families once bored of empty religious tradition. Imagine peace in communities long divided by history and race. Imagine Hispanic churches planting out of English-speaking churches in the most diverse cities in the US. A church in South Africa where people of all backgrounds and skin color link arms under one savior. A church in a project comprised of men and women, once addicts, gang members, thieves, pimps and prostitutes, but now loving God and others faithfully, joyfully, sacrificially. A church in Turkey, lovingly speaking truth despite bombs in the streets and threats from extremists. Imagine an explosion of churches planting churches, digging ever deeper with the beauty of Christ into the ugliest parts of their communities. We are drilling deep. Let's drill even deeper. Now imagine this gospel spreading, reaching into every dark corner of this planet. Imagine a surge of disciples wanting to be trained and sent out. Men, women, families counting the cost to go where Christ is not yet named, not knowing when or if they will return. Imagine indigenous communities of light sprouting in dark, inaccessible and intimidating contexts where grace is still not known. Imagine a work with refugees in Europe, giving homes to the homeless, giving hope to the hopeless, fueled by prayers that one day these men and women will return home bravely, wisely to plant churches. A church in the poorest parts of Brazil, feeding families providing education, speaking truth. Academies, equipping and resourcing young Christians to engage with the mounting complexities of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this world. Churches in the Middle East, seeing members martyred, but still holding unswervingly to the truth they profess. Communities forming and growing, shaped by the gospel in deeply secular cultures and communities. A church in Paris, discipling and sending Iranians back home, transformed and equipped with gospel zeal. Imagine churches all over this globe, partnering together, flourishing and reaching out with the gospel. By God's grace, we are reaching wide. Let's pray for gospel arms to reach even wider around the world. There is not a square inch of this world that Christ on the cross has not won for himself. There is not a square inch where the Church of Christ should not be, showing love, giving hope, speaking truth. Acts 29 is a diverse global family of church planting churches, drilling deeper, reaching wider, planting churches until every neighborhood is saturated with the gospel so that the unreached are no longer the unreachable. Thought about that? Yeah, come on. So this morning, I'm, I'm not even making this up, this dude comes up to me this morning, he's South African, he goes, I have just moved to Australia, he goes, and I was in an Acts 29 church in South Africa. I said, was it going well? He goes, yeah, it was going really well. Here's the thing, we, we want to connect with a network and we don't just want to plant one church, we just want to keep planting churches because we want to see people reach for the gospel. So what can you do? Well, you can begin thinking about the financial cost. 
It's going to cost us money to plant a church. And that's okay. That's okay because all of our money is God's money. <laughs> but it's going to cost money. And we want to use God's money on his mission, right? So we can begin thinking about that. I mean, if you wanted to start giving a regular amount to church planning, you can do that. Just put it in the church's bank account and make sure that it's marked church planning and we'll set it aside for that. Here's, here's another one. Maybe, you know, Humeridge Church of Christ are just about to plant a church. I was talking to someone about it. And I said, where, where are they going to plant? And they said, on the Gold Coast. How are they doing that? Well, there's 30 people that are moving to the Gold Coast. Why couldn't we do that? Would God call us to that? Would God call some of you to sell your house and move so that other people could be reached with Jesus? Think about the relational cost. You know what's going to happen is there's going to be a bunch of people in the project that are not going to, you're not going to see them as much anymore. I mean, if it turns out that Matt and Chloe do a church plan, that's going to be a heartbreaker for me because I work closely with that guy. I love him. We work closely. We're honest with each other. And you know what's going to happen? It's not that we won't be connected anymore, but we're not going to work together anymore. But that's what God did, right? God takes the best and that's what we need to do. We need to take our best and send our best out. True? That's all we need to do. God gave the best. He gave his son. That's what gospel does. You can start praying. You can start praying. You can start seeking God about whether he would have you to be part of this new work. And we don't know where it's going to be yet. And so we'd love you to come and talk to us about your thoughts about church planning. Come and talk to the elders about where God's leading you where you think maybe God, I mean, I've already had a bunch of people come and tell me where they think God's leading us to plant a church. And they were smiling when they told me because it was near their house. <laughs> and here's the last thing. Pray that God would raise up people to lead church plants. There are people in this church that God's called to something far greater than the job that they're doing. And I'm not saying that you can't worship God in your job and that you can't have a ministry in the job that you're in, but there's people here that God's called to something bigger than that. And God needs to pull them out of where they are. Because we're not going to need just one church planner. If God uses us the way that I, I, I'm excited about him using us is that we need more than one. How many do we need? I don't know. But there's plenty of people that need Jesus You know, one of the great privileges of doing the job that I do, and it's not always great, but do you know one of the great privileges of doing the job I do is when people get baptised? Like that is just out of this world. How on earth would God ever use a broken Peter, a messy Peter and a broken and messy eldership and every leader in the place that's broken and messy to actually do something as rich as saving someone's life for eternity? What a blessing. Charles Spurgeon said this, No work can possibly confer a greater benefit upon mankind than the training of ministers whom God has chosen. Hear that? For around them spring up churches, schools, and all the agencies of religion and philanthropy. What's he saying? He's saying, what am I saying? I'm saying this. You think about the, uh, 
the mercy ministries that exist in Australia, and most of them got started by churches. That's what churches are meant to be doing, but the churches weren't meant to disconnect from the uh, mercy ministry. They were meant to stay connected and vital. What's Spurgeon saying? He's saying probably that there are young men in this church that need to get a call for ministry. Probably. That's bigger than just making a pay packet or buying a house or buying a car. Like, that's just pathetic. Right? Is anyone with me? Like, the call to actually go out and to start new things that are really hard and really difficult. That's a good load for a young man. Who's with me on that? It's a good load for a young man. Let's see God send out harvesters. So pray that God would send out harvesters into his harvest field. Here's where I'm finishing. I'll read you a section out of a, uh, an article by Tim Keller. In 1820, there was one Christian church for every 875 US residents. From 1860 to 1906, US Protestant churches planted one new church for every increase of 350 in the population, bringing the ratio by the start of World War I to just one church for every 430 persons. That's impressive, right? In 1906, over a third of all the congregations in the country were less than 25 years old. Like, that's impressive. As a result, the percentage of the US population involved in the life of the church rose steadily. For example, in 1776, just 17% of persons in the United States were categorised as religious adherents, but by 1916, that figure had risen to 53%. Why? Well, there's probably a whole bunch of reasons, but you can't deny that prolific church planning had an impact on America. Why are 50% of Americans Christians? Probably because of church planning. After World War I, however, especially among mainline Protestants, church planning plummeted for a variety of reasons. Listen to this. One of the main reasons was the issue of turf. Once the continental United States was covered by towns and settlements with churches and church buildings in each one, there was strong resistance from older churches to any new churches being planned, planted in our neighbourhood. Whoever the heck is that? As we have seen above, new churches are commonly very effective at reaching new people and growing during their first couple of decades. The vast majority of US congregations peak in size during the first two or three decades of their existence and they remain on a plateau or slowly shrink after that. This is due to the factors mentioned above. They cannot assimilate new people or groups of people as well as the new churches can. However, older churches have feared the competition from new churches. Mainline church congregations with their centralised government were the most effective in blocking new church development in their towns. As a result, the mainline churches have shrunk remarkably in the last 20 to 30 years. Here's where we finish. What are the historical lessons, Keller asks? Church attendance and adherence overall in the United States are in decline. This cannot be reversed in any other way but the way it originally had been so remarkably increasing. We must plant churches at such a rate that the number of churches per thousand in the population begins to grow again rather than decline as it has since World War I. If that's true in America... How much more true is that in Australia?